previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. Motherfucker, man, here, here, man. Oh, all my life, I used to ask me that. Big one, see me, get your ass out of that. Get a stand cigarette. Yeah, tell me that musty ass out there. From Delaware, almost live. This is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. 102 episodes and on the feed for the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the show where guests talk about their connection to sports. And I am your host, Earl Holland. Of course, this is a special compilation episode where we're going to talk to some guests from previous episodes, just talking about their love for a particular topic. This topic is pro wrestling. And of course, I know a lot of people tend to be on the sides of either being fans or skeptics of it, of course, but I always see it like this. When it comes to a lot of the forms of entertainment, pro wrestling is up there with movies and books, and they're all forms of artificial entertainment. People can say that about a Marvel movie, and people can say that about their favorite reality show or things like that, but I feel like that tends to get a bad rap when it comes to pro wrestling, where people are always willing to jump to the first thing of it being fakes and things like that. And I think that's an unfair assessment, especially when you think about everything that we watch outside of pro sports is artificial and contrived. But in this episode, some of the guests I will be talking with are Brian Banks with excerpts from Episode 7, Piledriver, Kevin McGarity, and Mike Brittingham, longtime friends, as they talk about their love for wrestling in Episode 20, Diamonds and Rings. Diamond Holton, who in the next episode talks about her love for the Attitude Era and, of course, the Hardy Boys in Episode 21, Pens and Words. Mike Gordy in Episode 32 talks about his experiences being a fan of pro wrestling and the aptly named episode, The Road Warrior, and then... Linwood Outlaw and Andre Watson talk about how they prepare to go into WrestleMania, as well as their thoughts on Kofi Kingston being the first black WWE WWF World Heavyweight Champion. But right now, here is our discussion with some of our guests for the Sports Refuge Podcast. Now, I know that you're probably one of the biggest wrestling fans that I know. How did you get into wrestling, and what was your first match, if you remember watching? Yeah. <laughs> My first matches and all that blends together. Um, all I know is my great grandmother used to watch wrestling every single weekend and she would take care of us and we would be sitting in the living room and it would come on. We used to watch the old NWA uh, Saturday morning recording solely and then we didn't have WWF, uh, we didn't have those channels, but my neighbor got a satellite dish, but he would record them and bring tapes over and that's how we started getting into uh, WWF. And we would get uh, tapes from the video store, like WrestleMania. See wrestling like WrestleMania three, watch that on tape, and you know Hulk Hogan, you know, was everything. Man. You know, we used to have you know the workout, the little dumbbells and everything. You know, those good times. Now you talk about how far back you watched it. How have you seen wrestling evolve as a fan? Um, really, man. <laughs> Wrestling is like, you know, you ever play those wrestling games with the creative finisher move? They're doing that in real life. It's like ridiculous, man. I mean, me personally, some things I like and some things I don't like. What I like about it is the innovation, the evolution of what they can do. Downside to that is they're losing out on the reality based of it. It's becoming like unbelievable. You know, like the early 80s, early 90s, you still had that kind of like rhythm to it where, you know, you can hit a guy and like drop him on his head. <laughs> he's not coming back up. Now you drop a guy and say he's back up in like five seconds. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but, you know, they'll make it entertaining. You know, they still make it entertaining. 
That's an interesting thing, and because there's so many avenues to go in that direction. The first thing you told me, the reality, how it's sort of stretching. Back in the old days, you watch some wrestlers, some moves that used to be deadly finishers, like the DDT or something like that, those would knock someone out. Now, maybe it barely puts someone down for a few seconds. Right. Yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. Yeah, I don't remember when it goes wrong, but you can hit somebody, go up to your room and hit somebody with a clothesline wrestling evolve i guess is according to i guess storylines and i always listen a lot to the jim Cornette podcast where he always talks about the basis of wrestling actually ted dibiase said it as well the basis of wrestling it's a battle of good versus evil do you feel like that can still work nowadays especially as we hit 2020 yeah i believe it can go back to that it's just it's just a lot of people's like not going on that formula i mean wwe tries it but I think the way they write the characters, it goes against <laughs> that basis. Now, you know, if a guy tells a crowd to shut up, they'll cheer it because they're being insulted. So, I mean, the crowd has a lot to do with it, too. Like, the fans they attend. I mean, the fans turn into their own show. So, uh, they kind of take it over from the performers. So, it's kind of hard for a performer to even perform that. I mean, I give it up to the ones that can. Like, the Miz, the Miz is one of the best. I gotta give it to him. You know, he still get a reaction out of the fans if anything comes out of his mouth. I mean, the guy is great. He's like almost like the rock kind, which is pretty awesome. But he's like old school. I know everybody gets on John Cena for some of his promos that are that sound very childish. But then if you look back, even through reflection, at some of the stuff The Rock said, it sounded very childish, but it was funny nonetheless. John Cena, he just portrays himself as the good guy. That's what he is. I mean, people don't like it. I see nothing wrong with it. I mean, he's playing a good guy. That's what good guys do. <laughs> I mean, they try to get the crowd behind him. Like, they might not like what he says, but hey, he's doing his job. Selling merch <laughs> What was the first live match that you ever watched? Live? Oh, man. I want to say it was a WCW show at the uh, Civic Center. By Comic-Con Center Salisbury, um, it was, the main event was, it was scheduled to be Lex Luger and Sting versus Nikita Koloff and Ric Flair, but, um, but Sting didn't show up, and they turned into Lex Luger versus Ric Flair, and then the horseman came out, like, jumped Lex Luger, then Elegante came out, so it was like the early 90s. That was the first show I It's just crazy how going out there, seeing everything live, it's just such a different thing than seeing it on TV. Right. I love seeing something like a lot of wrestling live because, I mean, it's something about seeing a show live that tops ever watching on TV. I mean, you can hear, you know, the impact, the blows, you know, you can hear people reacting to the crowd. I think that's one of the most hilarious things, too, <laughs> is hearing people's reactions. Now, you were mentioning commentary. Do you feel that commentary can really impact a match? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like WWE. I mean, it's got a big hole to fill, basically. It's just like Jim Ross and Jerry Waller, because 
those two were both complementary to one another in so ways. I mean, basically, Jr. could set up and King could knock it out, and then vice versa. Now they're trying. I mean, they're trying, but it's just not the same. Yeah, I feel like. Call me hokey, but I love Vince calling matches. Vince calling matches, it seemed so over the top. Yeah, he was really into it. <laughs> you know, he didn't know a name of a move to save his life, but Vince had an energy into it. Like, he got you excited to watch it. That's a big maneuver right there. <laughs> yeah, you know, they got you excited. Yeah, that's why I was excited when Jesse Ventura and Vince did that one one off. I think it was a Battle Royal on Monday Night Raw almost 10 years ago or so. But yeah, it's like he hadn't it's like he hadn't missed a beat. It's like it hadn't been like almost ten plus years since he had lasted in a match. Well, I, I don't remember that exact battle role, but yeah, they were good. They were good also. I like Jesse Ventura on commentary. Him and WWE and WCW. I like them both. Because I did like him with Tony Shavani as well. I know you mentioned Gordon Soley as well. Gordon Soley is like a completely different level of announcer. More like the technical type. Would call it like he sees it, like the IP moves, like what was going on. Yeah, nobody does it like your And I also like the way he said Ronnie Garvin and things like that. (laughs) And I can see it because I think the act is supposed to be silent or his friend, something like that. How did you evolve, I guess, going to watching some of the different matches like CCW and some of the other things like that? I feel like that's a, was it a gradual transition going to the more, I guess, realistic hardcore matches? Well, I mean, I watched ECW and I also watched FMW uh, way before I watched CCW. So, I mean, I had an idea of what was going to happen when I went to a CCW show. I used to watch those uh, FMW tapes. They bought them out. When ECW was, you know, promoting them and then, you know, their, their wrestlers were wrestling on their shows. I started, you know, trying to find those tapes, DVDs, like F&W. And, you know, I started watching them and watching Terry Funk and Cactus Jack and, you know, the other wrestlers, like Apple the Butcher, um, the Hayabusa. <laughs> See, they had different kinds of wrestlers on there, too. They had the High Flyers, also like Jim Station, Rock Fools. They had different types of styles and different types of matches as well. It wasn't all blood and guts, but, you know, they had that fair amount of it. How have you seen wrestling evolve over, I guess, 25 years of being a fan? Probably more than that. It's like crazy over-the-top characters that you dreamt of when I was a kid. It's actually coming to life now as an adult. It's pretty wild, man. You know, you can play those WWE SmackDown games where you create the finisher. I think I mentioned that earlier, but it's ridiculous. If you were a wrestler, what would your finishing move be? If I was a wrestler, I'd slip the simple where I can uh, put on anybody. Uh, I saw it on TV, but now it'd be like the Rainmaker, which is a clothesline. <laughs> I wouldn't have to fly in the air or do something crazy. Yeah, I feel like when it comes to finishers, they're not as basic anymore. I know we discussed that a little earlier, but I feel like sometimes something simple, a submission hold, things like that. I like the sharpshooter. Sharpshooter is my favorite. Submission hold, uh, DDT is probably my favorite non-submission finisher. Yeah, it's something simplistic, man. Like, I wouldn't have to like, risk injury, you know, because every time these guys go up, man, they risk injury. I think I heard an interview once, like uh, Randy Orton had an interview. And he was talking about his injuries, like his shoulder injuries. And he said the first time he went on the top rope, they said, 
don't go on the tie rope. He's like, you don't need to go on the tie rope for anything. And he said, uh, he didn't listen to him and went up to him on the tie rope again. And that's how he like, hurt his shoulder for like the first time. Which, it was crazy. Like to keep it simple, man. Just like a running kick or, you know, like a same thing as a loop kick in the corner. He can put it on anybody. Just running, kick you in the face. Now, of course, being a wrestling fan growing up, you know, you probably had to hear it like everybody else tell you. Oh, it's Faye. And, I mean, how did you have to deal with that? I always told people, well, you know, Die Hard is not based on a true story. Yeah, I mean, it annoys me. You know, and I think people just want to make that point to annoy you just because you say you're a wrestling fan. But um, it is kind of annoying. But, I mean, like, I was like, real housewives of city A and B. I mean, they're not real either, but, you know, <laughs> you guys watch that. All these reality shows, reality shows, I use that loosely in parentheses, they're scripted also. At least wrestling has physicality to it, you know. Like, actual combat is like a scripted combat sport. I mean, it's still a sport, but it does have a script to it. There are actors. And the influences wrestling has had on a lot of popular culture, I mean, it's influenced boxing. Muhammad Ali was a big fan of uh, Gorgeous George, and he used every bit of that in his promos against other boxers. Was that the promo when he slapped it in the face? He used it all the time. He always talked about how pretty he was and, and things like that. Because I know there was um, one interview I saw uh, where the wrestler before it came up. He was like, how do you, how do you um, like doing that fake stuff? He was like... And he slapped, he slapped the reporter. He's like, is that fake? Oh, the B. Brian Blair one. Oh, my God. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, like I said, they're trained so you know how to not hurt yourself badly. And you're trusting someone. Yeah, they're trying to fall. You're training, like, you know, not actually knock out the person that you're fighting. You know, you learn how to throw a blow. And you're a trained professional there once you get in. Are you a fan of Japanese wrestling? I know it's a little more stiffer than what you'd see in America. I don't like watching New Japan. I mean, I'm like new into getting into New Japan, so I couldn't really tell you about what happened back in the day. I mean, I've seen a few matches a long time ago, but yeah, I'm really just, you know, getting into it in the past, like, three or four years now. Uh, I really enjoy the product. It's really different. It's like taking it back to old school a little bit, um, like what they used to do in the 80s. But now they're blending in the new guys with the new styles. Like, they're bringing in a lot of American and uh, British guys, and they're putting their own styles into it also. Like the American independent style and the uh, English wrestling, like the ground wrestling. They're bringing a lot of that over to uh, Japan now, which fans love now. Their fans are like big into like indie wrestling and you know British wrestling. They know the products, so they know the people when they come over already. And you hear of some of those guys, I mean, especially some of the older guys, old school guys, they go off to Japan, and it's like a completely different thing. You see Hulk Hogan wrestle in Japan, he's a completely different wrestler. Yeah, those are pretty cool to watch him wrestle over there. I was like, wow, he's really going. I didn't know he had it in him. But I can understand why he wrestled with the way he did here in America, because, you know, he's doing it a number of times a year, and because in Japan, you don't wrestle as frequently, so... If you do a heart like that every single night on a U.S. stuff, you don't last long. Like a lot of these guys now, they're always injured and stuff, you know, because, you know, they wrestle that hardcore style, you know, which, you know, is entertaining. I love it. But it's hard on them. I know it's really hard on them, especially those in the WWE working that style like every single night, over 300 nights a year. I mean, ooh. <laughs> I ooh Who would you say is probably the most agile big man wrestler ever? Miss Agile Big Man ever? Yeah. I had to go between um, the Big Show and, and Kane. 
Oh, man, Bam Bam Bigelow also. I can't forget about Bam Bam Bigelow. That's a piece. Yeah, I can't forget about Bam Bam. Bam Bam was awesome, dude. He could be like this all kinds of stuff, man. He had power, speed. He had it all. Yeah, I feel like, especially I agree with Big Show. I remember when he was in WCW as a giant, he did a missile drop kick off the rope, and that was when he was a bit lighter. And I was shocked. Someone seven foot four, and maybe at that time he was like four hundred something pounds. He was doing drop kicks like crazy. I listened to an interview. Got who it was? They said that when he was a rookie, man, this dude was in practice doing like moonsaults and stuff, like springboard moves and stuff. <laughs> the difference between big men now and big men maybe back in the 80s they didn't take the fall that much yeah definitely that's why they lasted longer that and they probably only went around place maybe once a year that's why Andre Giant last all those years too because he didn't really do anything fancy <laughs> so you know and plus he just went everywhere you know he was like an attraction he was born in man all the different territories and, you know you're going to bring them in for like one place and bring them for like a couple weeks and he'll go to the next one and he lasted a long time in the wrestling business. Do you feel that there can still be special attraction wrestlers now? Oh, they are. They're called the Young Bucks. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. They go all over the world, man. Um, their travel schedule is like crazy, man. I follow their uh, YouTube show, Being the Elite. Half of the show is like showing how they travel, where they go. Well, one of the recent episodes, they was on the European trip to uh, Ring of Honor. And show that they went from Japan to California to like New York over to Europe, London, and then Ireland. Man, those guys and Cody, their group that they have, the Bullet Club, they're they're everywhere, man. That's why people you see all these shirts everywhere now, man. Like Bullet Club, everything. I mean, the way they got their contracts, they can go anywhere, pretty much, except for the WWE. Could you imagine living your life out of a suitcase every day like those guys? Um, you know. I'll talk about trying to get a job, something like, you know, job to travel, like, all the time, but, you know, I don't know if I can do it, you know, you gotta be home sometime, you know, just, you know, catch that break, but those guys are, like, constantly going. What do you think about how Billy Corgan is trying to relaunch the NWA? I hope he succeeds, actually, man. I mean, if he can get it to where, you know, I don't know if he can get it to where it used to be, but if he can turn it into something new, uh, something pretty big, hey... I'm pushing it for him, man. I hope he does it because that's more opportunities for people to, you know, to have work, man. Instead of just looking at Impact or, you know, Ring of Honor or WWE or New Japan, you know, it's another place to go for the person to work. So, hey, man, all new jobs, <laughs> hey, man, <laughs> can't, you know, not support people getting new jobs, man. I remember we were talking a little earlier about John Cena and his character. Do you feel like Hulk Hogan, as originally branded in the 80s, would work now? They would boo him, man. They would boo him nonstop. It would work. He would be the most hated wrestler on TV. And because he'll keep winning, oh, man, they would hate him. But it would work. People would come to see him lose. Just like you do with John Cena. But now, since Cena came back, you know, he's being cheered. So, you know, it's 50-50 with Cena, but... I think they boo something like a Hogan though. Do you feel like wrestling can always use just a dose of nostalgia but not go overboard? Yeah, from time to time. Like the Royal Rumble. You don't see the nostalgia. How did you guys get into pro wrestling? And what was your first event that you remember going live to? Mike and myself have been friends since we were about eight years old. We moved next door to each other and 
we didn't really know each other very well. We had seen each other around school, but we didn't really know each other. We moved next door and we just started talking, started hanging out a little bit, and we realized that we were both big pro wrestling fans. The first event I ever went to was in the Baltimore Arena. It was an old WWF TV taping back in the day of Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, those guys. But uh, for me personally, what got me into wrestling was my dad had an old cassette tape of Starcade 1985. And the main event was Dusty Rhodes against Ric Flair. Four Horsemen against Dusty Rhodes, one of the greatest rivalries that's ever existed in wrestling. And Ric Flair is my hero. He's my favorite wrestler of all time. But uh, I remember watching that cassette tape over and over again, and there was one match that set my world on fire when it came to wrestling, and it was Magnum T.A. facing Tully Blanchard for the United States title in a steel cage I quit match. And I was probably about seven years old when I watched this for the first time, and just watching it, watching the brutality of it, and watching the performance of these two guys inside of a steel cage you know, just terrorizing each other, and you know nobody would quit. And Magnum T.A. with a broken wooden chair jabbing a piece of this chair into Tully Blanchard's forehead, it was like, holy crap, you know, this is amazing. You know, then you, you fast forward and you're watching the promo for the Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair match, and, you know, Dusty Rhodes had his world-famous uh, hard times that a promo, you know, it just reached me and it touched me and it was something that just captured me the way that Dusty Rose and Ric Flair could talk to you and captivate you with every single word that they had to say. The way that Ric Flair could make you just love him but hate him at the same exact time because he was better than you and he knew it and he wasn't afraid to let you know that he was going to go 60 minutes with you and you weren't going to beat him. And that's just what captivated me. And when me and Mike met each other and you know, we started hanging out, we started watching a lot of wrestling together. It was just that kind of bonded us together as, as best friends. And it's been like that, honestly, since we were eight years old. Well, I know personally for myself, when I was growing up, I would always listen to my dad tell stories about him wrestling. At the time, I didn't correlate that he meant more Greco-Roman high school wrestling, so here I see this Saturday mornings on TV, and I am just captivated. Like, it was, to me, it was the most fun thing that I could watch when I was young, that these guys are really slamming each other, and they're talking on the mic, and there's promos that you don't, you don't realize until you get a little bit older, you know, how much that actually entails for some people to do. And you got to think about it, like, when when I was growing up, I would be like, man, I wonder if they were like that in real life. That'd be one of the first things I would think about. And I would watch matches. And Kevin's a huge Ric Flair fan, and I can't lie, I was always a Shawn Michaels fan when he came in with the Rockers. I think he puts on the best show at that time. But seeing these characters come out, and they played them so well, and all I could think was, this is what I wanted to do when I got older. Like, this was something that was so awesome that you could talk about and then kevin ended up moving next door we got into that like more and more and we would talk about it and my brother who's a little bit older than myself he was somewhat into it and it just really took off and i've seen many live shows so to go back and pick out specifically one i would have to pick out the time that me and kevin went to see wcw in salisbury and I think it was one of the first times that the Giant came out, and uh, he was standing in the crowd, and I believe uh, 
they had a wrestler by the name of Fit Finley, and we would always just, you know, because he was Irish, so our parents always told us we were of Irish descent. So we would yell, Ireland. I mean, it was just something that you could go and be yourself and have a good time, and it brought a lot of people together. Yeah, and we've been to a lot of events together when we were teenagers. Mike's mom would take us to Baltimore for a lot of the Monday Night Raws. We saw some really really cool stuff. There's an episode of Monday Night Raw where Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kane pushed Paul Bearer down a sewer and we were there for that. Uh, we got to see we got to see The Rock defend his WWF championship against Shane McMahon in a steel cage. Just real cool stuff like that. They have events here at Salisbury Civic Center that we go to every year. We're actually planning on going to WrestleMania this year in New York. We've never been to anything like that before, so we're looking forward to kind of getting there and, and taking it all in, Hall of Fame ceremony, the NXT the night before WrestleMania, and WrestleMania itself, which is always, Lord knows how long it's going to be. It might be 24 hours long this year, but it's always a spectacle. It's always an event, and uh, you know, just looking forward to stuff like that. Do you feel that wrestling has changed as the older we've gotten? Especially, we grew up in the age of Hulk Hogan and then Stone Cold. And as we got into adulthood, it's John Cena and now the era of Roman Reigns, Brock Lesnar, and things like that. Well, it has changed, and I, you know, I'll, I'll definitely say not for the better. It's changed because society has changed. We are a society of social media. We're a society of reality TV. And, you know, obviously these performers, wrestlers, they're, they're human beings just like everybody else. They like to enjoy their social media. They like to talk about their lives, which is great. But in reality, it kills the idea of realistic storytelling. I can remember a couple years ago when the Roman Reigns-Braun Strowman rivalry first really kicked off. You know, they were in the middle of a very heated feud, and, and they were battling every week on Monday Night Raw. But then you would look on Braun Strowman's social media on Twitter, and you'd see a picture of them you know, hanging out together in some city that they're in or eating dinner together. And you're like, all right, well, yesterday on Monday Night Raw, you guys threw each other off the stage through tables and couldn't stand each other. And today you're sitting here having a coffee together. It just kind of kills the storytelling ability. You know, that's the biggest thing to me that just kind of drives me crazy is back in, I'm a huge fan of the Attitude Era, as I like to call it, in 97 through, you know, 2005, really. There was always a story. Everybody had a storyline. Everybody had something going on, and it captivated you. Every week, you never knew what was going to happen when Raw went off the air or Nitro went off the air. It was, it was always a mystery, you know. What am I going to do until next week when Raw comes on again? Now it's I can sit and watch Monday Night Raw and I can tell you segment by segment what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. And it just kind of loses its allure because you already know, you know, every week now Drew McIntyre is going to come out and beat up Dolph Ziggler and Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose are going to fight. And it's just gotten a bit stale at times. For me personally, um, when I was young and was really getting into it, I would really in my head think that this is how these people were in real life. Like they were heels in real life. Ric Flair would woo you and tell you he was going to kiss your mother. And, you know, in my head, they were like that 24-7. And now that I'm older and with social media, you see, like Kevin was saying, they're hanging out with one another, which, you know, everybody as a fan that I am still, you know, you know this 
you know, that's, that's what they do. I mean, they travel together, things like that. But I think it's changed a lot, not for the better, in my opinion, because I feel like they're trying to target a specific audience as opposed to a whole audience. So they're targeting, obviously, John Cena. There's no way in the world he should have almost the same amount of titles as Ric Flair. I'm sorry to say it. It's just how I feel. But he is perfect for the kids. You know, he's a role model. He anti-bullying, and that is awesome. And that is really essentially what you want nowadays with all the issues that are going on. It's just, as an old-school fan, it's one of those things where they just don't carry their character all the time. And, and again, they shouldn't have to, but as an old-school fan that grew up, I really thought that they, you know, acted that way in real life all the time. You know, and it just takes away, in my opinion. I always sort of see the John Cena, Hulk Hogan comparison to sort of like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, different eras growing up different times. But unlike seeing Kobe play against Michael Jordan, we didn't get to see Hulk Hogan wrestle against John Cena, the official passing of the torch like they did with Hogan Rock. I feel like and that was something that just poor timing and other things that happened. That was something that would have been a great thing to see. Well, seeing John Cena against Hulk Hogan would have been okay. But, you know, like you just said, WrestleMania 18, we got to see the passing of that torch from Hollywood Hogan to The Rock. And you know, that will always go down as one of the greatest matches of all time. That was Hulk Hogan coming in after taking that time off from WCW and you know, the buyout. He, he waited his time and he came in and he had an amazing match with The Rock. And The Rock took that torch and he carried that torch. But he also, he passed that torch you know, it, it was his torch, and he passed it to John Cena at uh, WrestleMania 28 and 29. You know, they had a great rivalry, and they had, you know, the thing that always kind of bothers me about the anti-John Cena people, his character got very old. And, you know, the idea of the Superman who can beat everybody, and, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you hit him with a pedigree or sweet chin music or a Stone Cold Stunner, John Cena's going to kick out, it gets old. But... One thing about John Cena that nobody can ever deny is he never has a bad match, and he never disappoints. His rivalries in the mid-2000s with Edge and guys like that, he just always carried the torch, and he always made the best out of a bad situation, no matter what the case was. They call him Big Match John for a reason, because he never disappointed. His matches with Triple H, his match at WrestleMania 23 with Shawn Michaels, match with Shawn Michaels is probably one of my favorite matches I've ever seen. His rivalry with Kurt Angle, he was just, he's such a great performer, and I feel like if they had done something differently with him, if they had done something similar to the Hulk Hogan NWO heel turn with him, he would still be on top today. I, I honestly don't think he would be away doing movies right now, because I still think he would be the top heel in, in the history of wrestling. Could you imagine if Hulk Hogan's run as an actor took off the way it did for The Rock and John Cena and, to a lesser extent, Stone Cold. Do you think that we would have had that whole Hogan sold-out type thing the way they did with The Rock? Absolutely. Yeah, honestly, I think it would have been a little more hurtful yeah. with Hulk Hogan than it was with The Rock because Hulk Hogan was Superman. Hulk Hogan carried the wrestling industry on his back for maybe, you know, close to 20, 25 years. From the birth of Hulkamania in 84 to him leaving for WCW in 95 and the birth of the NWO and completely reinventing himself from ground zero in 96 with the NWO. 
you can say whatever you want about Hulk Hogan personally. You know, I, I know his personal life is kind of crazy, and he's done some things that nobody really agrees with. I have a friend of mine who I talk wrestling with all the time, and right now he's very anti-Hulk Hogan. And I tell him all the time, I'm not a fan of Terry Bollea, but I am a huge Hulk Hogan fan because, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, he was Superman. There was nothing that Hulk Hogan couldn't do, and there was nobody that Hulk Hogan couldn't beat. You know, watching him power slam Andre the Giant was one of the greatest moments of my entire life. I watched it on closed circuit TV in Towson when WrestleMania three happened. I actually have the baseball card they made of him slamming Andre the Giant. And if you're our age, which is in that realm of 37, 35, you know, 40-ish, there's no way that when you grew up and you were a professional wrestling fan, you didn't rip your shirt. Everybody ripped the shirt. My mom would cut little holes in the t-shirts that I didn't wear anymore just so I could rip them completely off like Hulk Hogan did when he came out. I mean, if you didn't do that as a wrestling fan, you're not really a wrestling fan. Going back to our earlier discussion about the evolution of wrestling, do you feel Vince McMahon's speech about fans not having their intelligence insulted was a double-edged one? Yes, they wanted the entertainment, but then at that point, do you let that veil of, yeah, I wouldn't say secrecy, but you see a little more of the inner workings, and I feel like that may have changed a lot of stuff, too. His speech that night on Monday Night Raw was a game-changer, and it was something that had to happen. They were getting beat so bad in the ratings by WCW, who was doing a lot of realistic storylines at that time. You know, the, the whole NWO angle in general, from the start until about the middle of 90, 97, the late 97, was all very realistic. You know, you didn't know what was going on when Paul, Nash, and Hogan were attacking people backstage or, you know, out in the parking lot. That was very real feeling for a crowd that really hadn't dealt with the reality of wrestling yet. But Vince McMahon he had to make a decision to do something to turn the table. And when you start adding a little bit of reality into your stories, it, it makes people interested because you can sit and watch a match, you know, between Doink and Duke, the dumpster Drose, And you say, you know what? Yeah, that's crap. You know, obviously that's fake. But when you see Stone Cold attacking Bret Hart in the back and he's, taking a steel chair to his knee and you know they're loading bread up in an ambulance you say well okay that was real that happened you know it turns the tables in what's reality and what's fiction and he did that the best way that he possibly could have and you know he was facing a lot with Bret Hart and the, and the Montreal Screwjob issue and honestly that right there and the decision that he had to make it changed and shaped the wrestling industry forever i can't even fathom what we would be watching today had bret hart not made the decision to not drop the title to Shawn michaels and force vincent man's hand to take the title from him the way he did it was a necessity and at the time you know it was very controversial and it was very very raw and it was very real but it was something that had to happen wcw had so much money and so much influence that you can't say that, you know, oh, well, Brett wasn't going to take the title to WCW. Alundra Blaze had already dropped their women's championship in the trash can on live TV. You know, they had already had Rick Rude walk out on TV on a taped edition of Raw and then walk out on a live edition of Nitro on the same exact night. WCW was going to kill WWF at all costs. 
so, you know, Vince did what he had to do to save his company and to keep his brand alive. And I think it happened by accident, but in doing so, he managed to create the greatest villain that has ever lived in professional wrestling, and that's the Mr. McMahon character. Yeah, and I think that that was a huge benefit for them. And I felt like, especially on Monday nights, especially from a span from maybe, even from the beginning of Monday Nitro to, I'll say, 99 there'd be a point I would change back and forth in between commercials. What's on Raw? What's on Nitro? Back and forth. And I feel like the way they would build it up at the end, I feel like at the end of Raw, you'd get sort of a final ending, but you know, I'm going to tune in next week. It was more of a cliffhanger at the end of Nitro than it was Raw some week. Absolutely agree. When you watched the end of Nitro, you didn't know what was going to happen when the cameras went off. You couldn't wait to tune in and figure out what they were doing and what was going on. Like you said, at the end of Raw, you kind of had a conclusion. And the story brought itself back to life next week. And the way they did Nitro, the story kept going from Monday night at 11 when it went off to the next Monday at 8 when it came back on or whatever time it was. You really wanted to tune in to see what you couldn't see, but you knew that when you turned in the role, it was just going to be started back over again. You know what I mean? Yeah. One thing that Nitro did really, really well back in those days, 96, 97, 98, their last segment they would cut off the air while things were still going on, which made you want to run to their website to see if there was any video of what was going on. You know, it would be 11.05 and they'd be, you know, telling us we'll see you next week. But right as they say that, you know, Sting is dropping down from the rafters. You know, so, so you're left going, well, what, you know, what the heck happened with Sting? You know, what did he do? What are the NWO doing? You know, they're in there beating up Diamond Dallas Page and the Steiner brothers, and here comes Sting, but, oh, now we've moved on to the next show. Meanwhile, you know, on Raw, most of the time, I would say about 90% of the time, as they cut off the air, you kind of knew that, okay, that's what it was, that's it. Either Stone Cold was on the corners smashing a beer together, or, you know, The Undertaker was doing his thing, Shawn Michaels DX, you know, whatever the case was, you had a conclusion for that week's episode. Nitro was just a little bit better of driving traffic to their website or driving traffic to their 1-900 number at the time with, you know, the recently deceased Mean Gene. You know, he was great about keeping up that 900 number to feed you information about what was going on after the camera stopped. That cliffhanger ability was amazing. Man, 900 numbers. Who knew that they could generate so much money off of those 900 numbers? And nowadays you look at it, you can get your information off of any wrestling website. Oh, yeah. You, know, you look at all the information that you have at your fingertips now, and you realize that all that stuff you're reading for free on the Internet used to cost you a 40 or $50 phone call to listen to Jim Ross or Gene Okerlund tell you about it on the phone. All the stuff that you could read in a dirt sheet you know, or you could get from Dave Meltzer, you know, you're getting for a $1.99 a minute from Jim Ross or Gene Okerlund. It's crazy the amount of information you have just sitting right on your phone now. To me, it takes away, man. Like, when we were young and that cliffhanger happened, I don't know about you, but I would immediately beg my mom, let me call the 900 number, let me do this, let me do that. And nowadays, it's right there, and it's free, and it's, you know, that's the part of getting old, but, man, uh, there was nothing better than to call that line when you were actually finally allowed to, and then you call your buddies the next day, or you see him at school, and he'd be like, well, I called the 900 number last night, my mom let me, and this is what happened. Mean Gene said, you know, A, B, and C, and it kept you going. 
Were the phone calls live or were they pre-recorded? I was always curious about that. I never called. I know I'm out of my butt if I even tried to call the 1-900 number. <laughs> yeah, they were all pre-recorded yeah, information. Pre-recorded, sure. uh, yeah, just recording. of and None of it was exclusive stuff. None no, of it was ever uh, behind-the-scenes information. They gave you enough to make you think that you were getting what you weren't supposed to be getting, basically. Yeah, it was definitely pre-recorded. It was always just enough to give you that little bit of nice feeling. So you went to school the next day and you told everybody everything. And then the following week, you know, it was just such awesome advertising that they could come up with. Amazing money schemes, if you think about it. But yeah, it was definitely pretty cool. I know that you are a pro wrestling fan as well. And I know one of your favorite teams are the Hardy Boys and Lita. Can't forget Lita. I don't know if you watched it much, but what did you think of the broken slash woken Matt Hardy gimmick that he did recently? It was interesting, (laughs) to say the least. It's kind of hard now. Like, I'm not into wrestling as much as I should be or much as I used to be. So seeing the Hardy Boys the way they are now, it's kind of not the same. I mean, they're older. You know, they got to change their persona eventually, I understand. But I kind of miss the old Hardy Boys. Like, that WrestleMania moment when they changed the match. And I'm like, okay, so who's coming out? And I heard the music. And you know how you can get chills? I've gotten chills when Undertaker comes out because his intro is just downright creepy and amazing all at the same time. But when the Hardy Boys came out, I was like, are you kidding me? Am I a kid again? The Hardy Boys are just, they had no limits. There was nothing they couldn't do. Jumping off ladders, swanton bombs, twister, fates. And I always loved the women wrestlers because wrestling with my cousins, I was the only girl. So they were like, oh, man, you got to be the girl wrestler. And I'm like, but none of the girl wrestlers are that good. So I would always pick, like, Lita because I'm like, okay, well, Lita has twister fate too, so I'm going to just twister fate everybody and win. So, but, yeah, the harder boys, they just all-time favorite. I mean, Undertaker's up there, too. Don't get me wrong, but... If I had to pick, it's definitely Hardy Boys. Yeah, I think the Hardy Boys, their battles with Edge and Christian and uh, the Dudley Boys, I think those matches put them to another level. I really think without Edge and Christian and, and to a lesser extent, the Dudleys, I feel like they wouldn't have had that ceiling to aspire to. Yeah, it has to be somebody. You have to pick off some tag team phenom to uh, help adjust with yours. But yeah, Dully Boys, Edge and Christian. Oh man, you're taking me back now, like to the old the old wrestling. Like the WWF. <laughs> like the good days. Those were amazing days. You may want to just go back and watch tapes <laughs> like right now. Yeah, I think that's the best thing, especially having the WWE Network. The best thing about it, in addition to basically getting all the pay-per-views for like basically 120 bucks, like which is three times as much you would have paid for one pay-per-view at one point, just being able to go back to watch nearly every old match that you can. Especially, I always talk about this, being able to watch the Monday Nitro that was in Salisbury on my 13th birthday. That was the best moment ever. I feel like I still remember it to that day, especially sitting in the audience in that one corner of the Civic Center and then seeing Hogan and Arne Anderson and all those guys. It just brings you back to that moment. Yeah, that's that's one thing I loved about wrestling. Like, when you know, like, the major pay-per-view events were coming, always knew somebody was going to come back that hadn't wrestled in a while or somebody was going to make a special appearance. It never felt, I was like never disappointed. Somebody was going to make 
the new wrestling era like the old wrestling era. Like, I remember there was one WrestleMania I was waiting. I was going through, like, a list of old wrestlers that I liked who were either still wrestling or we hadn't seen and heard from because they were injured and they decided not to, you know, participate anymore. I hadn't seen Stone Cold for a while. And then when he came out and Nick Foley came out and Shawn Michaels, I was like, yo, and am I going to get the, the Doc Puppet, Sweet Chin Music, and the Stone Cold Stunner all at one time? Oh, you can count me in. I'm, I'm there. Definitely. Yeah, I always thought Royal Rumbles were the best event because next thing you know, someone you haven't seen in years. I remember, I think it was like 2000, 2002, that time like Mr. Perfect came back or like Ming came back. I'm like, wow, I can't believe they came back. And Mr. Perfect was probably what, late 40s at that point. He didn't look like he had aged a day. He looked the same, same hair, same look. You know, you see some guys are just balding and are fat now, but same long blonde hair, same shape he was, like 1994. It was just like nothing missed a beat. Oh, definitely. And it's like, for me to continue to be a fan, they have to keep doing it. You got to keep bringing people back. Me personally, I don't care how old they are. Just show their face. <laughs> it adds to if they're able to wrestle. That's awesome, but... Just to know they're still part of this organization that always brings me joy. What was your thought on Hulk Hogan coming back? That might be one of those weird situations where it's like, what do you do? It's It could be one of those things that's like, man. Uh, him coming back, I mean, it was okay. You know, you kind of don't forget some of the things he said, but it was okay. I feel like for him... I feel like he needed to make a slight comeback. Not necessarily a comeback, but like he needed to be back on there. Because if not, I won't say people would have forgotten him, but then his last thing would have been the things that he said. It just would have been bad in general. But Hulk Hogan coming back, now that's somebody that's kind of old. I mean, he can wear that scarf all he wants to. <laughs> you know that ball spot's still there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing. I feel like a lot of people talk about, well, if you want to make wrestling better, one of the biggest things, you can't keep relying on guys from, you know, 15, 20, in this case, 30 years ago to boost things. And they talk about no part-timers. Like, Brock Lesnar barely shows up every, like, month or so on TV. Mm-hmm. But, I you know, and there's a plenty of guys now who are really good. It just seems like there's not much, I guess, traction for those guys. Right, right. I mean, I guess in this time, you know, you got to develop your name. You got to develop a name for yourself. The storyline got perfect. Because <laughs> that's what part of me misses, the old wrestling. The storylines were so good. There was always so much happening outside of the ring. Everything is so inside of the ring. Well, they're making wrestlers managers now. You know, it's. I was like, when wrestlers were becoming managers, it was cool. More so me, I prefer when wrestlers were um, referees. That was the most entertaining for me, especially playing it as a video game. Because it was like, I can do what I want. I could be your friend and count one, two, and then stop. And you're sitting there still pinning. I'm like, I'm not counting it through. So what are you going to do? But I was like, I kind of miss the old era because the new era is just, sometimes I feel like they're trying too hard in a sense, you know, but I mean, at least they're trying. You know, they're still one of the highest rated things to watch on TV, especially Monday Night Raw. <laughs> Are you interested in seeing what a show like SmackDown will look like on Fox, on network television as opposed to cable? No, because I feel like if they were to do that, they might diminish it a little bit. There are a lot of things could, can't be done because like, well, we don't want to see that and we don't advertise that. So I kind of like cable better 
I mean, cable doesn't have a lot of freedom, but I feel like there's a lot more freedom in cable than there is on the basic channels like Fox 5. Also, we were talking about steroids and you talked about MMA and boxing. I look at pro wrestling. That was more, the steroid use was more for just recovery because they have a brutal schedule and for glamour because even Ric Flair talked about he used steroids just more for looks. And, and you know, I imagine you some guys don't get the opportunity to work out on the road, but if you're supposed to look a particular way, you don't want to be out of shape or not look like it because then you don't live up to the, the look that people expect you. You know, Dusty Rhodes could have been Dusty Rhodes looking the way he did, but Rick Rude couldn't look like Dusty Rhodes and still be Rick Rude. Right, yeah, you know, especially, you know, you're on the road 200 days a year and with their lifestyle and, you know, they're literally driving all night into the morning. You know, it's hard to then work out to the level that somebody with his physique would need to to maintain that and eat the way they would and then, you know, work a show or maybe two sometimes and then drive it all night again without some help. You know, you're not at home, you don't have access to you know, cooked meals or easily cooked meals and stuff like that. You can't control your diet the same way someone who comes home every night does, you know, and plus the stuff that they did do at night when they weren't driving, that didn't help the situation either. Yeah. And when you hear about some of the guys now, the younger guys who are about our age or maybe younger than that, they don't partake as much as some of the older guys did in a lot of partying, and it seems like that was a knock on some of the young, younger guys. Oh, all they do is play video games and stay to themselves. I mean, not everybody's going to be like Ric Flair and shut down the the bar at the uh, Sheridan Inner Harbor Hotel in Baltimore. I mean, you know, but then you look at it and the guys from, you know, especially from our childhood of watching wrestling, how many of those guys are still around? How many of Ric Flair's contemporaries are still around? They lived really hard. Uh just even if you did everything right, quote unquote, and didn't do the extracurriculars, just from that the traveling and and how the, the the toll that that sport takes on your body, that will have some consequences. Then you add to the fact that they're drinking and and all the other stuff they were doing, and and then you throw steroids into the mix. Yeah, you're probably not going to live to see seventy or eighty. It's a miracle he's alive. And you know, and I'm, I'm glad he is, and I'm a huge fan, and a huge fan of all those guys. And you know, our generation, I, I think we're really lucky, uh, our age group, to have been around to see the heyday of. Cause I, I think that you know, entertainment-wise, that it's not even close now. I don't think the product's close to what it was. Um, I'm not knocking these guys, and uh, you know, they they do a great job, and uh, the WWE is still a great company, and and I think. AEW is going to do some cool stuff, but what we saw in the 80s and 90s is some pretty cool stuff. And I I think that, you know, it's still something that I think about now, 20 years later, 25, 30 years later, it's crazy. Yeah. And even in using Hulk Hogan, for example, who rarely got injured, he has back problems, he has rods in his back. Uh, maybe botched surgeries. He's had his knee and hip replaced and things like that. He can't even do a leg drop. And everybody's like, if he gets in a ring and takes a bump, he might shatter his back to the point where he might not even be able to walk again. And it's just crazy. He was in ideal shape, didn't take as many bumps as everybody else. And he's still pretty bad, almost 70 years old. It's, you know, and you think about a Mick Foley. What does his skeleton look like right now? 
you know, what? how does he feel every morning when he wakes up? I don't even know because I haven't seen or I haven't uh, heard any updates on him in a long time, but like a Sabu or some of those guys that were really, because, you know, with some of the injuries they were having at the time and, you know, uh, even though he didn't take as many bumps, I don't know what his hips are like, but I know like a Rey Mysterio, his knees are destroyed and it's, you know, the sacrifice that those guys um, made in the, interest of entertaining kids and, and grown-ups all over the world and it's, it's pretty cool and I, I think that anytime anybody is willing to do something because it's not like they went into the business blind they know that you're going to be taking that this sports or this uh, uh, form of entertainment is going to take a toll on your body that someone that's willing to do something like that I think that's a pretty cool thing and, and I've always been into that uh, obviously uh, more so when I was a kid um, just because I think it was a little bit more entertaining. I like the the ring psychology. I think they told great stories in the ring. And just the style of match was a little bit more entertaining for me as I start to sound more and more like an old guy. But <laughs> it was, uh, I think that pro wrestling, the really unique form of entertainment, I think anyone who approaches it with an open mind and you can kind of explain it to them if they're willing to listen and really watch it would be entertained by and think it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah, and I think about Rey Mysterio, and I just start thinking about WCW and those cruiserweights, and he had to be barely 20 when he was starting to do a lot of that stuff. It's crazy. You think, him, Jericho, those guys were young now, and Jericho's almost pushing 50, and Rey Mysterio, even after a point where he had to take a time off because his knee was destroyed, he looks like he hasn't lost a step. It's insane. Um, You know, taking care of your body and – you know, putting the time in and maybe a little bit of luck or genetics or who knows, but, you know, just to see what these guys are capable of is, is pretty awesome. I haven't been to a live event in forever, and that's something I'm probably going to try to get to just to uh, enjoy because I haven't seen one in a while. And, uh, it's a pretty cool uh, thing to now with the WWE Network to go back and look at some of the cool stuff that, that was uh, going on in the 90s and early 2000s and even seeing some of those nitros and that were in Salisbury back when we were there and uh, checking some of that stuff out and trying to relive some of that. Yeah, and when it comes to a lot of those 90s things, they haven't put everything up there, and I feel like they need to put everything up there because those shows interconnect and tell the whole story because what happened on Monday Night Raw will go into what happened on Superstars, and what happened on Superstars you might see on Wrestling Challenge or The Action Zone or things like that, and you don't get to see a lot of that stuff because it's not up yet. And some of it may never get up there. And I'm waiting for all the WCW Saturday nights from basically like 93 on because that's when I started picking up the early part of 94 right before Hogan came into WCW because I had been watching uh, WWF about maybe before SummerSlam 94. So it was basically after WrestleMania 10 and right before SummerSlam 94, and that's where I picked up on that. Okay. Uh, so I I am aware um, of a uh, YouTube channel that has all the old-school WCW Saturday nights. Hmm. Uh, I can share that link. I don't want yeah. anybody to get it. I don't want, too many, I don't want that channel to get too many views because then we won't get it. But uh, they have a bunch of those. and it, it... So it was my great-grandfather, actually, from what I was told. Um, I spent about 
six years of it with my grandparents in South Carolina when my dad was getting a divorce and he was you know, going all over the world for the military. So during that time, my great-grandfather would come take me from my grandparents' house and take me to Columbia, South Carolina, something South Carolina, all over South Carolina to go see Jim Crockett promotions. And as my grandmother explained it to me, he used to take you to see some flare versus dust person. I don't know who these people are, but flare dust, I don't know. Obviously, she's talking about Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes during that time period. So that was basically it. And I just remember, like, for me, the first memory I have of wrestling is the first class of the champions, which should have been in uh, 1988, um, going head to head against WrestleMania four. And I remember watching that on on TBS, Flair versus Sting. So that's really the first memory I have. But I was told that, you know, I used to go to uh to wrestle my great grandfather. And I've been pretty much hooked ever since uh, my my dad doesn't watch wrestling. My grandparents didn't watch wrestling. It was just my great-grandfather, and it just stuck with me all these years later. Yeah, for me, so <laughs> I always think about I know it was uh, 93, and I think I was having a sleepover uh, one weekend at my house, my mom's house, where I was um, living with growing up. And we were watching WWE Superstars, and they were doing a recap of the, the Monday Night Show when Crush had returned. And he had attacked Randy Savage. You guys remember that episode? Mm-hmm. Man, it was like the recap was so dramatic. I'm sitting there watching. I never really watched wrestling at all to that point. Um, and the, my friend who was over for the sleepover, he loved it. He watched it. He had, in fact, that weekend, it brought over his wrestling figure to play with. I didn't even have a collection of wrestling figures at that point. If I did, I played with, a, you know, figures from the other kids and neighborhood, things like that. So I never actually really sat down and watched it until that weekend. And I just remember being so mesmerized. I was like, man, Crush is leaning into this guy. He's destroying this dude. And it was just, he just like, it was just an all-out assault that I was just mesmerized with. And I was just captivated more so than anything by, like, the drama of it. And I was like, man, I got to watch what happens next week. And then from there, it was, I was just hooked, man. I mean, it just took off from there. It snowballed. I think maybe a couple of months later, I went to my first wrestling match that was in Baltimore. I kept pestering my father to buy me action figures, which he did begrudgingly. Uh, and it, it just it just snowballed, man. It just started from that one episode of Superstar recapping when uh, Crush uh, turned on Randy Savage and turned him. It just all started from there. So I'll say late 93 is when I, I got into wrestling. And I was thinking about this. And would I mean, you can feel free to correct me. And I was thinking about how all this started. And to the best of my recollection, you know, when we were in college, you know, after I found out what was a wrestling fan, we talked about, man, just one day we're going to go to WrestleMania. One day we're going to go to WrestleMania. And I think it was like mm-hmm. in 2004, um, yeah. you know, when, when Mania was going to be at uh, Madison Square Garden for WrestleMania 20. And at that point, they had a pattern. It seemed like WWE had a pattern of every 10 years they were holding Mania at the Garden. WrestleMania 1, the Garden. Mm-hmm. WrestleMania 10, the Garden. WrestleMania 20, the Garden. So I think we talked about, okay, man, so cool. So it's 2004. So if the pattern sticks in 10 years, they're going to have WrestleMania 30 at the Garden. We're going to the Garden. So whatever, I, I guess we made that pack or whatever. The years went by. Um, and I remember watching WrestleMania 28 in 2012 on my couch with my wife and my mother-in-law. And I'm watching it, watching you know the pay-per-view. And this is back in the day where you didn't know where the next year's WrestleMania was going to be until you were watching that WrestleMania. This is before they started doing these press conferences and all that, like a year and a half in advance of when the next WrestleMania was going to be. And it flashed across my screen that WrestleMania 29 was going to be in North Jersey at MetLife Stadium. And I was just like, oh my God, 
I wasn't really prepared because we were thinking we, they were going to go to the garden for 30. So that was our plan. And I was like, oh, my God. And I'm pretty sure I text Wood. I'm like, yo, I don't think you're watching this, but they're saying Vestman 29 is going to be at MetLife. We're in there. We got to figure it out. I don't know what's going to happen. We're going we're gonna to be in there. And then that's when it all started as far as, like, the planning and all that stuff. Wood, I don't know if you remember it that way, but that's the way I remember it. Yeah, that's how I remember it pretty much. Because I remember around that time, it was like after – WCW folded and everything. Um, I was kind of watching wrestling like off and on-ish. And, you know, once we got into to working for a living and things like that, um, I was just more so wrapped up in the working and things like that. And then we watch wrestling so off and on. So I didn't realize until Dre had told me that they were going to have it at MetLife Stadium. He's like, this is it, man. We're going. We're there. And I remember not really believing it. It was like, okay, like, yeah, we're going to WrestleMania. But it didn't hit me. Like, I'm actually going to go WrestleMania because I always told Dre, I said, look, man, if I had never met you, I had never been to one WrestleMania, let alone the five I've been to. I always tell him that all the time because it's like I just never really thought that it would happen. You know, I never thought that I'd be around people who would take it seriously enough to go. Like, you know what I mean? Because I always felt like it was like like the Super Bowl almost. It's like one of those like events that you always think about going to or want to go to. Like, I've had friends who was like, man, I wish I could have went to a WrestleMania during the Attitude Era. You know what I mean? You just didn't think that you would get that close to that big event because it's right up there. Like like I said, you Super Bowl. Look, man, I'm 36 years old. I've never been to Super Bowl. Never thought I would go to um, one WrestleMania, let alone multiple ones. And that first one, it didn't hit me that I was going until, like, maybe a couple of days before until we actually arrived in the New York, New Jersey area, man. And it's just like, it was just a different world there. But yeah, that's how I remember it pretty much. And Dre, like I said, thanks again, man. This is the the master planner of all of this. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, it's just, it's, it's like, I don't even know to this day how he managed to plan it year after year after year after year after year. But he handles it, stays on top of it, always plans <laughs> great trips, man. Dre, thanks, brother. Thank you. As, as we've gone to, you know, these multiple WrestleManias. We refer to the WrestleMania day now as a work shift because yeah. <laughs> like you said, I mean, it's literally where we get to the stadium at like pre-show starts at like five. So we're in the stadium from like three to like midnight. So within the last couple years, I've realized the best way to handle it. There are two ways. Either choose your seats wisely. So for me, I'm picking now. I will only sit in club because you have more leg room, the bathrooms are better, less lines for concessions, all that stuff. But last year in New York, in Jersey, that was the best way to handle it. We were in a suite. And let me tell you something. I didn't even feel like I was there for seven hours because I was up walking around. We had a lot of room. I wasn't confined to this small ass seat. I mean, it was great. Like I, you know, there was a match I didn't want to see, which I kind of regret not watching live, which turned out to be really good once I watched it at home. Shane versus The Miz versus Shane McMahon. It's a great match. But I wasn't into it leading up to it. So I was like, you know what? This is going to be my bathroom break. Mama walk around, see all my folks, you know, see my friends and whatever that I haven't seen in a year, chill with them. That's what I did during that match. So it's all about choosing your seat. Now, if you want those people that want to be on the floor, good luck because you're going to be down there in a folding chair for seven, eight hours. And then you got to walk all the way back up top through the 100 level just to get to a bathroom. So if I'm not sitting first row, I'm not sitting on the floor. I know you guys mm -hmm. have the opportunity to go to Full Gear in Baltimore, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. 
what was that experience like, especially you and you guys went to the first AEW Dynamite as well in DC. What was that experience like and how did it compare going to a WWE event? Um, it was great, man. Like, so here's my whole thing with AEW, right? So living where I live, and I was going to shows regularly around this area, Philly, Jersey, I would always hear about people online would always talk about, you know, what it was like to go to ECW back in the day, you know what it was like to kind of be there from the beginning and kind of help that revolution take form and get to where it got and, you know, and, and to where they got a TV deal and, you know, that sort of thing where they got on pay-per-view and that sort of thing. And I was like, man, I would get my right arm to be living in Philadelphia or New Jersey back in 1995, 96 and be a part of that, that ECW revolution. And with AEW, I feel like going to these shows ever since, like since the beginning, pretty much we're a part of that. So Compared to WWE, I mean, the energy's there, but it's a different energy. A lot of people have said it's kind of like a cross between WCW and ECW all mixed into one um, as far as, like, the crowds that they get. But, I mean, it's phenomenal, man. People are so passionate about the, the product, and they're loud. I mean, there could be, like, like that building. When we went to the first Dynamite at the phone booth, or whatever it's called now, it's always going to be the phone booth to me. It's Capital One now. It's always going to be the MCI center to me. <laughs> it was almost sold out, but not completely, and it was loud. We went to full game in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Loud. Just loud. Yeah. They are passionate. They love the product. It's a different product. I mean, it's just – um, it's been really fun to watch, man. It's just been uh, it's been great to see them grow and, and to go from doing one show last year in Vegas to getting a TV deal by the end of the year. That's crazy. Crazy. Honestly, AEW to me is very reminiscent of WCW. It is like I feel like there is like a WCW feel every time I watch it. But they're their own brand and their own right at the same time. Um, they have great talent. They have great main eventers and mid carters. I think that um, over time the women division will get better. I think that's probably the one thing that's probably lacking that, that comes to mind for me. But it'll get there. I mean, like, and again for w, like when you compare it to WWE's women's division. I, it's tough to do that, you know what I mean? Because I think I still think that the WWE's women's division is phenomenal, man. Because um, I was, I remember just saying, like, just looking back on like a year or two ago, I was like, man, just like this, the the women's roster is so stacked, and they have just like it's just it's really come a long way. Because I remember, look how far up, they came. Yeah, look how far it's they like, came. I was like looking back on it, like you know, back when like Alondra Blaze was the champion, like they Vince were kind of dangle the division to us or dangle women's wrestling to us and then it just go away again with no warning or announcement. And it being the same you know, three women wrestling all the time. So Lunder Blaze, Bull Nakano and, and Bertha Faye, those same three they'd yeah. be wrestling all the time. Right. And she had great matches with Bull Nakano man. and um had a good to me, I thought she had a good little program with um Bertha Faye. I don't know, it was just something amusing about Bertha Faye and, and her Whippleman together, man. Yeah, Harvey, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just something funny about that. I just thought it was an amusing pairing. I, I, I was entertained by it as a kid watching that programming story. Um, and I thought they had some entertaining matches, let's be honest about it. I thought they did. I thought Alondra was still a good worker. And, um, you know, but, you know, when Vince gets a hold of these, these former WCW talent, he always wanted to give put his spin on it. He never really wanted to do Except for Flair. I think Flair was the only guy that he basically just transitioned over to his show and presented him as he was to me. Like, even Sid, he had to give Sid a new name, and Sid kind of felt like a different kind of character when he came over. 
that sort of stuff. But I digress. The uh, you know, the women's division WWE to me continues to be awesome. So I think that when you compare AEWs to that, it's like you know, yeah, they have a long way to go, but they'll get there. Um, I, I believe they'll get there. But I'm impressed with what I see from AEW. I think it's a good product. Um, I think it's good to have that option again for fans. I think it's a great thing for the business, man. And um, it's just great when you have that there. I mean, a viable option like AEW is, is building itself up to be uh, with, with with names and things like that. So I think with Jericho and, and Cody and Omega and Hangman, those guys are doing down there, it's, it's great for, for the AEW brand, but it's also great for the business as a whole. I think a problem with wrestling culture these days is everybody feels like they have to watch everything to keep up with the Joneses. Like, no, you don't. No, like, I don't care. Yeah. Like, whatever. <clears throat> I watch what I have time to watch, and that's it. Literally, the only way you would have time to watch all this if you were unemployed. That's it. You just watch TV all day. Yeah. That's literally all. Yeah, that's I'm not only... trying to be unemployed. <laughs> exactly. You're extremely rich. And yeah. that's the only way. You're unemployed or you're extremely rich. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's the only way you have out. time all day. <laughs> You can think of plenty of guys who are getting wasted who will never, I mean, like I said, they already dropped the ball on Lashley when you basically made him really a sideshow joke. And when he's probably one of the few people I could legitimately say that could give Brock Lesnar a run for his money. Because if you're going to bring in Cain Velasquez, you you already have another MMA guy in there who's wrestled, who has that experience, who's been a world champ, and you're just letting him do cuckold stories? Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's just like this. If Bobby Lashley were you know in Jacksonville that'd been a different story they'd probably play him up the way they did with Jake Hager the way AEW does with Jake Hager Mm -hmm. you know I mean I always saw Lashley it's a black Lesnar and maybe that's not a fair comparison but I I feel like he can do much more than what he's being saddled with well I mean I don't watch I haven't watched TNA in like 10 years but from what everything I hear he was phenomenal in TNA, phenomenal. Like to the point where like he got back on WWE's radar and that's why they brought him back in 2017. And they just haven't used him the way he was used in TNA. For whatever reason, TNA was able to get the most out of him. And I don't know. I mean, he has the look that Vince loves. No, he can't cut a promo, but mm-hmm. that's why you put Leo Rush with him. That's why you put Lana with yeah. him, but they're still not using him, like you said, to... To, the, to his abilities, and we should have that Lesnar Lashley dream match. That should be the WrestleMania match. Yeah, you know? I agree with um, that. But I mean, Drew deserves it too. I mean, because Drew, Drew's another guy that left yeah. and went away in TNA, you know, worked his butt off on the Indies, went to TNA and came back, and now he's a star. So he deserves it too. But yeah, Lashley's been back three years, and we haven't gotten this match yet. We should have been had this match. And I don't know when his contract runs out, but who knows if he'll resign. He'll probably stay screwed and try to go to AEW because. Right. You know, they're out there now. They're an option, you know, unless he's been locked in. I don't know what his, his contract status is like, but, yeah, they definitely dropped the ball on him. What was that like to you, that moment Kofi winning that belt? If I think about the three Mania moments, top three for me are probably um, Taker 1, Kofi 2, Daniel Bryan 3. Um, like mm-hmm. I said, Kofi, I mean, they didn't talk about this. They didn't come out and outwardly say it leading up to the match, but all black people knew that there had never been a black WWE champion. Yes, The Rock, but then there's always the, yeah, but he's half Samoan. And he claims Samoan more really... than he does black. They... I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that, but let's be honest. He yeah. claims he's more Samoan. He claims he's exactly. equally black and Samoan, which, again, no problem with that, but <laughs> let's just put that out there. Yeah, and right. they, they, they've always played up more so his Samoan heritage than they've had, they do his black heritage. So for the Kofi thing, everybody knew, right? 
and, you know, so there was no more year, but yeah, but so they didn't play that up as far as the storyline, you know, Kofi gave, you know, subtle hits, like you don't want to see somebody like us, like me win the title. So black people knew. So when he won, it was just, I remember me and Wood, like we kind of hugged and we were jumping up and down. We were just, just yeah. so happy. And I, I got up, I got emotional too, again, because, you know, the first time it was just, it was surreal. I mean, that's number two, um, just to be there for that, you know, and it wasn't supposed to happen. That was the thing. Like only reason Kofi was in that match was because Mustafa Ali got hurt and couldn't do the elimination chamber. So all this Kofi mania, that was not supposed to go down. Had Mustafa Ali not gotten hurt, Kofi would have never been put in that position. And ironically, and the beauty of the whole Kofi thing is he was such good friends with Daniel Bryan and his story very so much mirrors Daniel Bryan's story from 2014 because Daniel Bryan wasn't supposed to happen. You know, Daniel Bryan was supposed to wrestle Sheamus for the 18,000th time at WrestleMania um, for the third year in a row because they had fought. No, I'm sorry. They were supposed to fight again. They fought at 26, 27, no, 27, 28. And then they were going to fight again at 30. But he was supposed to fight Sheamus. And then, you know, CM Punk walked out after the Rumble um, because CM Punk was supposed to face Triple H and the main event was supposed to be Batista versus Orton. But then that crowd in Tampa took over the Rumble and started doing the Yes Movement thing. And then that just, the ground swelled and he got propelled into the main event. And kind of the same thing happened with Kofi, an injury, a fluke injury elevated Kofi. So I I love the parallels between those two and the fact that Daniel Bryan was the one to do the job to Kofi, being in the same situation Kofi was in, you know, five years earlier. It was just, you couldn't write a better script. It was just amazing. It was great. Yeah. I mean, from top to bottom, it was a really good story. I was really captivated by the whole thing. And just for this perspective, I always heard, you know, from a lot of fans of, of color, man, just, you know, representation matters, man. Um, I think that, that you can't emphasize enough how important Kobe's victory was at WrestleMania last year for young black kids. I remember growing up, man, we saw a lot of colorful characters like Coco Beware, uh, Junkyard Dog. There were other wrestlers that I liked, like um, Ahmed Johnson, um, Mabel, um, you know, and I always felt a special connection to them because they were black. And they, you know, for better or worse, maybe they're not in the role models that some parents or people would prefer to see for kids. But listen, young black kids watch wrestling like anything else. And I think it's important for them to see successful black characters, you know. And I think that Kofi's victory... I mean, it was emotional for a lot of guys. Like I remember that clip that was going viral with MVP when he when he just busted out in the tears and then because um, yeah. he saw a, a, a black man winning, not the world title. Okay, so we just saw like Mark Henry win the world championship and stuff like that, but the WWE title, which to me is still the chief numero uno title on the brand. It's it's the title with with the company's lineage. It's the title that ultimately represents the company. Kofi won that though. You know what I mean? Not the Universal Championship. He won that belt. And I think, that, yeah, I mean, The Rock had won it, but it was it was much more significant when Kofi won it. You know, I think that, um, you know, when he did that, it was, it was good for kids to see that because I think that, you know, representation on all level matters. You know, you see a black president, you see a successful black businessman. Um, and, and you got to also understand, too, that, that wrestlers for kids, they take on, like, the, the persona of superheroes. You know, when you see that kind of stuff happen, man, it was just a phenomenal victory, man. And I was just happy for Kofi, man. Because I remember, Dre, do you remember the, the first WrestleMania we went to? He was on the pre-show. Oh, yeah. Commentating. 
yeah, in the, right. the pre-show for that. Yeah. You know, he wasn't even on the card. He wasn't even wrestling. And think about it. We went next went back to MetLife Stadium. Six years later, he became WWE champion. Yeah, and I mean, I, now who would have thought that? Like, you know, I mean, like, yeah, he's had other championships. He, he had the, the the long run with the the New Day with the World Tag Team titles. He won an Intercontinental Championship. Um, but Vince, I always feel like you know, and not just for black wrestlers. Okay, Vince always feels safe of like you know, Shawn Michaels would say about putting those undercard belts on wrestlers because there's no risk for that, you know. But to to go full burn to put the WWE title on Kofi, it was monumental. If Jinder Mahal, out of all things, got the belt, yet Nakamura didn't get the belt, yeah, Samoa Joe didn't get the belt, uh, Lashley didn't get the belt, Braun Strowman didn't get the belt, that pissed me off more often than anything else. Yes, he probably would have been a flash in the pan like Warrior, but then still, the fact that he was red hot and you didn't pull the trigger, that's awful. That is absolutely awful. And Nakamura <laughs> losing to Jinder Mahal, I mean, I'm going back to Jinder Mahal being the champ. That's... uh. That's like, you know how Mick Foley always talk about Al Snow all the time? Yeah, this is my, that's my moment because Jinder Mahal should not have had the belt. Like I said, we talked about all the guys in the 80s who never got a shot to hold the belt. This is an example of you're just putting the belt on anybody, and which which is very yeah. disappointing. I mean, yeah, I mean, shoot, Dolph, I just held, want to Dolph held the belt, Mrs. held yeah, the belt. I, yeah, I just wanted to reiterate, yeah, the Jinder Mahal had the WWE Championship. That's awesome. I just wanted to just jump in and just say that, yeah, the WWE title. All right, proceed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, Nakamura should have won that belt. How you would have booked again, yeah. but since they don't know how to book non-English uh, speaking foreign wrestlers, but then again, they haven't really had an English champ either. They haven't had an English champ. They probably had a good chance to put it on Davy Boy years ago and never did. I mean, it never did it. It never did it. And should have done it at least once. You know, at least a flash in the pan title. You know what I mean? Like, give it to him one week and have him drop it the next. It ain't even give him the courtesy of that. Yeah, I mean, it's not – or Regal. Or Regal, but I know Regal had his issues, and that's why Regal probably never got the belt either. But Regal could have held the belt even as a transitional role, and that would have worked. Mm -hmm. You still have not had a true European champion. You never have. Did they – did they ever book Regal in a main event role in WWE at any point? No. Nah, I don't think they ever did. He was did a mid-card guy. I yeah. thought that after I mean, again, the King of the Ring, yeah. he was going to go, and then he got that drug suspension, and then they, they, they just sort of like, nah, we're not taking this risk anymore. Dre, I want to ask you, especially as a parent, do you see that getting your kids into to wrestling, it'll be an easy thing? Do you feel like that'll be something that you'd like to pass down? Yeah, definitely, because given my circumstances growing up, it kind of skipped two generations to get to me, right? So it was my great-grandfather, my grandfather wasn't a wrestling fan, my dad wasn't a wrestling fan, then I was. So yeah, I would like to pass that down, because it's cool, you know? I Actually, it's funny, so I remember going to meet Roddy Piper in 2013. I met him the same day I met Dusty. Ah, God rest both their souls, miss them both. They're both great guys, they're both great. Um, and there was a little kid in line, he couldn't be more than 10. Like, he doesn't know who Piper is. But the fact that he was there with his dad and his dad was passing that on to him, I wish every time I see a kid at a wrestling show, and I'm like, man, I wish my parents would have taken me to wrestling shows. That would have been great. We could have bonded over that. That would have been fantastic. So definitely that would be something I would like to do. Um, because, you know what, it is a bonding thing. And number two, it's something you can pass on. And then they can pass on to their kids and their kids and their kids and their kids. So it's definitely something I want to do.
I'm glad you guys had the opportunity to listen to this compilation of interviews and guests and excerpts, and we look forward to doing another one of these, especially plenty of wrestling fans, so be on the lookout for the wrestling episode part two. Next time, my guest will be David Cabrera, host of the Unnamed Sports Podcast, and he will talk about his fandom for the Washington Commanders. As always, you can catch episodes of the Sports Refuge Podcast anywhere where podcasts are available, including our new hosting site on Podbean, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app as well. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.